Hello, everyone, and welcome to the January 26, 2024 episode of KASB's The Advocate podcast. I'm Leah Flyter, and I'm joined today by my advocacy partner, Shannon Kimball, and our fabulous producer, Alec Mandrigal. Let's get started. It was a busy week of testimony in the K-12 Education Budget Committee, so let's break it down for our listeners. First up was a hearing on 2485, a bill that directs school districts to use either their current year enrollment or the preceding year to calculate state aid. Our listeners may know current law allows districts to use either of the preceding two years, whichever is greater. But some growing enrollment districts would like to be able to use their current year enrollment. The bill also states that if a district closed a school building in the previous year, it must use its current year enrollment to calculate state aid. KASB was neutral on the bill because our member-affirmed legislative platform supports allowing districts to use either their current year enrollment or the greater of the previous two years as is currently directed in law. Shannon, this hearing featured testimony, really good testimony, from growing enrollment districts and those who have stagnant or declining enrollment. And there were some good questions from the committee as well. What were your impressions of the hearing? Thanks, Leah. You know, I think that the testimony on both sides of that uh, really highlighted for committee members the challenges that come from the current way that the statute is drafted, um, particularly for those growing enrollment districts. There was a lot of discussion about the look back. Should the look back be one year? Should the look back be two years? Some committee members voiced concerns that they believe exist about counting students twice or funding students twice if you are funding on a look back for students that um, you don't have in your district because you're a declining enrollment district. I think that in many ways that concern is is based on on some assumptions that, that that are maybe not accurate in terms of how how things really happen within districts. We all know that base state aid is designed to give school districts the funds they need, not just to educate a single student, but to educate all the students within their buildings and within their districts. And so the assumption that if a student leaves, you don't need funds to continue employing a teacher, for example, is just not accurate in terms of the way that school districts actually work to educate kids. Thanks, Shannon. That's a good overview. Shannon, this actually also goes back to what you were just talking about, about uh, some assumptions that are made in the bill about whether a school district that closes a building is actually losing a lot of students and and doesn't need to pay teachers. Can you touch on that a little bit about why why we testified that that provision should just be excluded from the bill? Sure. So it it really is based on the assumption that if you close a building, you don't have to serve the students that were in that building anymore. Right. And and as as we know, typically if you're a declining enrollment district that is closing a building because you need to be more efficient with your resources, what is really happening is maybe you've lost a few students, but you have a number of students that you are moving to other facilities or serving in other ways, and you still need those staff to work with those students. Um, You know, we heard a lot this week, especially with the teacher of the year visit at the Capitol about the importance of, the the absolute critical importance of excellent teachers in the classroom and the primacy of relationship building 
in helping students be successful. And this is an example of how um, our current funding formula recognizes that. It recognizes that districts need to be able to plan and um, support keeping their excellent staff when they are going through these difficult decisions. And really by the, this suggestion that if you close the building, you have to use current year enrollment, um, it, it would compound the hardships for districts that are already struggling with those decisions. Thanks, Shannon. We all noticed that the committee seemed very interested in focusing on on perhaps just doing a a one-year look back rather than the current year, two-year look back. So we'll keep folks posted on that as the session progresses. We also testified this week on House Bill 2489, which addresses the controversial and flawed law enacted last year that gives the legislature first dibs on purchasing buildings that school districts want to sell. The bill that was heard this week clarifies that only buildings which have been used as attendance centers are subject to the first right of refusal process in the law. While KSB certainly appreciates that clarification, as school districts were literally being prevented from selling like a tool shed or something like that on their on their district property, we asked the committee to repeal the law entirely. Unfortunately, that's unlikely to happen. So we asked the committee to fix the absolutely unworkable timeline that's associated with this deeply flawed process around selling school district buildings. Shannon, you want to cover that process for our listeners and and why it's so difficult? Sure, Leah. So as we all know, the statute requires that districts provide notice to the legislature when they adopt an intent to sell a school district building. The way the statute is currently written, it could result in a scenario where if a district provided notice to the legislature right after the end of the regular legislative session, you have to wait until 45 days into the next legislative session before the legislature has to act on that intent. And then the statute gives the state agencies another 240 days altogether to complete a transaction to acquire a piece of property. So you know, in essence, that amounts to over a year and a half. It's something like 562 days, potentially, between the time that a district notifies the legislature and the time that a transaction would have to be completed. That's just simply unworkable. It it would function in practice to depress the the value of school district property in, in a situation where you're trying to sell it. So we highlighted that for the committee. We also noted that um, the attorney general issued an an opinion on December 11th of 2023, uh, where he was asked to opine on some of the ambiguities in the statute. uh, One of them being that it does not seem to require that a state agency that wants to buy a school district building has to pay fair market value or even has to pay anything. And the attorney general agreed that the statute is quite ambiguous, although he did opine that um, it would likely be the case that a buyer would have to pay, a state agency buyer would have to pay at least what a, a willing buyer in the community was willing to offer for for that piece of property. But that doesn't really go far enough because it still undercuts the the value of of that property in the sense that 
if you had somebody who was willing to pay you a dollar, for example, in your community for a school building, the state agency could acquire it for a dollar. So there's still a lot of problems with the underlying language in the statute that this bill didn't really address. And Shannon, you know, it kind of, you're speaking of the attorney general's opinion about, you know, a state agency being able to buy a building for like a dollar. We know that in other states, what has happened is that similar laws have been enacted and legislatures then um, put in place a mechanism that would allow the, the state to sell a school building, an empty public school building, to a private school or homeschool. And what we heard in the committee this week was Chair Williams saying, you know, really those empty school buildings should and could be sold to private schools or homeschools. And so it really kind of said out loud the connection that we've all know is was at the root of this statute in the first place, which is making it easier for the state to sell a building to a private school and, you know, a voucher school or a homeschool or micro school. And um, so that was that was a very interesting development this week and uh, just something that we thought we would share with our listeners. Okay, uh, changing topics just a little bit. The next bill we testified on uh, this past week was House Bill 2506. This is a bill that allows virtual school students to participate in extracurricular activities without complying with local school district expectations for student academics, engagement, behavior that uh, exceed CASIA minimums. Naturally, we oppose this bill because it violates school districts' local control, and and ultimately it's bad for kids to prioritize activities over academics. As much as we all love our love our activities, you know, academics need to come first. We opposed a similar provision for homeschoolers last year, uh, but unfortunately that was pushed through as part of the school funding bill. Shannon, would you review for our listeners some of the many concerns we have with with House Bill 2506 and and virtual students? It was was drafted in a confusing way that we uh, brought up in committee and uh, we hope that it will be um, addressed. So Shannon, can can you address some of the concerns we had, not only with the way the bill is drafted, but but the ultimate, um, probably unintended consequences of the current version of House Bill 2506. You bet, Leah. So one of the biggest problems with the bill is that it, as it was drafted, does not specify that it only applies to publicly run virtual schools. So we have a number of excellent virtual schools in Kansas that are run by our school districts. And there seemed to be an assumption among some on the committee that this bill only applied to those schools, when in fact, the way that it was drafted, it would open up activities in our local school systems to students who attend any virtual school located anywhere, including private virtual schools located out of state. And that was a major concern because it really would undercut the ability of local districts to to ensure that the students participating in the extracurricular activities that they provide are meeting local parents and communities' expectations of academic progress. Um, That's really really how it ends up prioritizing activities over academics, by taking away that ability of local districts to to have academic standards for those students. Many, you know, I think our listeners may know that many local school districts have varying 
varying expectations that say, you know, if you're going to participate in extracurricular activities in our school district, you have to have a certain grade point average, you know, you may, you, maybe you can't have disciplinary referrals, you know, there can be any number of things that you want to put in place other than just the minimum requirement that, you know, a kid who wants to be in marching band has to take the band class. And um, honestly, what, what this bill ends up doing is it would allow, it would set up a situation in which a child in a public brick and mortar school in Kansas could be cut from extracurricular activities in favor of a kid who doesn't live in their community, but attends a virtual school, you know, nearby somewhere in Kansas. And so very problematic. Um, there, there seemed to be quite a bit of confusion among uh, the committee members. And uh, the, I believe that the revisers are looking at that and um, we hope we'll see some improvements made to the bill um, in the future. Anything else you think we need to add about that virtual school extracurricular activity bill, Shannon? I think we should mention that it sounds like Keisha is looking at, at some yes, of the rules that are. Keisha yeah. has around this. Um, in addition, one other thing that came out in the, in the testimony um, from one of our in-state USD-run virtual schools is that um, they could handle this situation um, without changes to state law on the participation piece, if the legislature would consider some adjustments to some funding yeah. requirements around part-time students at virtual schools that right now are prohibiting virtual schools from effectively handling these situations. Yeah. So there seemed to be some interest on the committee in exploring that issue yeah. in the future. So it was a very interesting and kind of complicated situation, but, um, but nonetheless, a very valuable hearing as well. Okay, I think the final piece of testimony we want to talk about was our work this week on House Bill 2514. That bill amends the uh, current open enrollment law to allow school districts to decline to enroll a non-resident student who's not in good standing. We opposed the open enrollment law as unconstitutional when it was enacted uh, back in 2022, and we continue to do so. We stated, however, that we did appreciate that House Bill 2514 addresses an important safety issue for our districts. And we did say in our testimony that if the legislature does not repeal the open enrollment law, it should at a minimum adjust the time frame that's in place for accepting non-resident students. The current law opens the enrollment lottery for an upcoming school year in June and July for non-resident students, but enrollment for resident students typically takes place in August. So while our districts do their best to estimate future enrollment when they're planning their budgeting, it's quite common for districts to have many new in-district families enroll each August. And as a result, the, that the law's mandate of a June-July lottery period for non-resident students is extremely problematic. So we asked the legislature to take a look at that. We also would like to see clarification of the student transportation section of the law to, to really specifically address whether the sending school district or the receiving school district is responsible for the transportation of special education students. The law is silent on this point, and we really, it must be addressed to help districts best serve the legal rights and the educational needs of students with IEPs. 
Now, Shannon, this this last point really tripped the committee up. Uh, got, it got a little weedy, but I think it was a very important discussion. And can you fill our listeners in on why that clarification is so critical? Absolutely. So some committee members, including the committee chair, seemed to believe that under the open enrollment law, if a family of a special education student with an IEP that requires transportation chose to leave their district where they reside to use the open enrollment law and go to another district, they seem to believe that meant that, sorry, parents, everything's on you and you're responsible for transporting your student. You've, you've made that choice and this is how it's gonna work. Um, as the conversation went in the committee and as our, our listeners likely know, if a student has an IEP that says they get transportation to school as part of their services, that is a federal law requirement under IDEA. And that, that cannot be changed or waived without an appropriately convened IEP meeting in agreement by all the parties. And so it became clear in the discussion that that, that process and the, and the implications of the IEP process under federal law were not really fully understood in the context of the open enrollment statute. That's right. And I, you know, the shorthand for it is if we don't comply with the federal law around special education funding, that's discrimination against special education students. And we cannot allow that. And that's why we're asking for clarification of that of that piece of the law. Okay, so it was a busy week and we've got another busy week coming up. And um, I think Shannon is going to review the testimony that we're going to submit this coming week. You bet. We have six bills that we know of right now that we will be submitting testimony on. Senate Bill 387, which is the Senate companion to the House Open Enrollment Bill that we talked about a minute ago. Uh, That will be getting a hearing next week. We will submit oral testimony. Also, Senate Bill 386, again, another companion to the House Bill 2485 on current year and one year look back enrollment. House Bill 2594, which is going to get a hearing on Monday at 3.30 in the House K-12 Education Budget Committee. That bill establishes a school funding task force to look at the funding formula, which is, as many of our listeners may remember, right now is set to sunset in 2027. The chair of that committee wants to start taking a look at the work that is needed to address that. Unfortunately, that bill would repeal or end the existence of the Special Education and Related Services Task Force. And so there are some big problems with that bill. House Bill 2511 is a bill that's going to be heard in the Elections Committee in the House this week um, that would uh, permit candidates in nonpartisan elections to list their party affiliation. That is problematic because under a number of military and federal executive branch policies, their employees would then be not permitted to run for local school board seats in Kansas, if that was the case. So we will be submitting testimony on that. And then written testimony on House Bill 2547 in the House Health and Human Services Committee on school districts and emergency medication kits. And then House Bill 2528 in House Tax Committee, which uh, deals with a limit on property taxation for certain certain properties. And so we will be submitting written testimony on that one as well. Thanks, Shannon. 
So in addition to our work in Topeka next week, I and about a dozen other Kansas school board members are headed to Washington, D.C. to urge Congress to do its part to fully fund special education. We, that's a flashpoint issue in our state. The, uh, the state legislature is not doing its part to fund special ed, and neither is the federal government. So we are going to visit Capitol Hill and urge the federal government to do its part. And we'll talk more about that on next week's The Advocate podcast. So until next week, follow KSB each evening on our Facebook page for live Statehouse updates. And follow Shannon and I on X, that's the app formerly known as Twitter, for daily developments. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we'll talk to you next week.